This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. You might think with all the political rancor these days filling up the airwaves that America is a more discontented nation than it has ever been. But when you start to look into it, when you start to sort of dig into the trends, what you actually might find is that America is somewhat more of a complacent nation than it's ever been. And that could actually end up being a problem. Welcome, folks. To Money Beat Book Club. Yes, we are back. Another book, another group of Wall Street Journal reporters, and another author to interview. Today, we are talking about The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. The writer is Tyler Cohen. Cohen? Sorry, Cohen. And uh, we'll be talking to him shortly. Joining me here in the studio, heard on the streets, Spencer Jacob and Money Beat reporters Ben Eisen and Chris Dietrich. Gentlemen, how are we all doing on this this fine August day? Good, Paul. Doing how are fine. you? Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for answering we're, me. <laughs> well, I think um, we're all a little complacent, but besides that, you know. Oh, Spencer, oh, very well oh, done. Okay. Very well played. It didn't played. take long. It yep, didn't take long. No, it didn't at no, all. Sorry. Okay. Uh, hey, uh, Chris Dietrich, <laughs> I want to start with you since this, this was your selection. Uh, the complacent class, what are, we, what are we getting in this book? Yeah, so I think this is a little bit of a deviation from what we've done in the book club previously. I think like so many Americans earlier this year, this is a book that came out earlier this year. I was looking for maybe a framework to think about this divided country that we're living in politically, economically, socially. Um, and I guess what we have here is kind of a, a, a treatise that talks about how really Americans, contrary to what we might think with the election results and so forth, um, Americans are working harder to postpone change. Those at the very top um, are staying at the very top, those who are in the middle are rather than sort of aspiring to move up are, are sort of clinging to their jobs and, and holding on to that middle ground, whereas those in the in the sort of like lower um, portion of standard of living in the U.S. have, have little option but to move around. So um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think. What did we what did we make of the threads in here? Well, I think ben, it, I, ben, I, want to jump in? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely an interesting theory, this idea that this sort of stasis has taken hold and the author kind of uh, he he takes this across the entire spectrum of, of of things that you could look at from the way people act to the way corporations act, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I think some things kind of uh, fit this mold better than others. I, I think that uh, you know one thing that's been talked about a lot is that people basically they move less for their jobs that they're they're more wedded to where they live, and 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 there's been less sort of uh, seeking mo- seeking opportunity by moving elsewhere, and I think that that's that, that's one sort of piece of, of of evidence for this sort of complacency that's taken hold. I think um, right this this book really covers a lot of ground. It, it, it talks po- what the implications of this complacency mean for politics, for for corporate um, governance, for economics. I think for me, what resonated most are kind of what Ben described, which are these sort of social trends. The fact that People are moving less. They're staying at their jobs longer. Um, the, the sort of flip side of technology, how, yes, we have smartphones now, but really, you know, you have to be, it's the early adopters, those who already are pretty well immersed in technology who are taking uh, advantage of these things more than people who you might think might, like poor people who might not have access to technology really are being left further behind, I think, because the uh, of, of all this. And so things like 
you know, he, he uses examples like Spotify, this idea of this matching, how, how people can find dates online much more readily these days, how it's so much easier to find, you know, every single uh, Jimmy Buffett song in the entire catalog you have at your fingertips. But, like, the implications of that are, are this serendipity, this dynamism. He uses the word dynamism a lot throughout this book and how it's sort of fading how, you know, you lose out on this, the, the intermingling, the interpollination of meeting people and sort of being around is sort of increasing the segregation. I think there's a lot to that. It sort of resonated with me. But I think, Spencer, what do you think? I think for me socially, yeah. though, it's like really like the social examples I think were most resonant for me. with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, that some there are books, there's no book quite like this, but there are, are books like this that, um, you know, come out with a, a thesis uh, about American society. Um that are, I guess, kind of 100,000 foot, and but then stay there. And this book is, is full of statistics, I guess, it, fittingly so for an economist. And some of the stats uh, re- really are, are surprising. I mean, they, um, you know, are used to, to bolster his case. And in some cases, they're just, they're just interesting uh, asides, things on, on demographics, on how often people move. I mean, surprising things like, you know, the number of startups, is fewer today than it you know, than it was a couple of generations ago, um, but I, I don't. I'm, I'm not totally convinced uh, uh, of the argument, uh, but I I am more convinced uh, about some of his conclusions in terms of of where we're going, which is less stability, and that's that's uh, the most convincing case that he makes, and that's the most disturbing part of the book. And that is really at the at the core, right? It's this, and and we'll get him on soon to talk about when it began. But it was really in the '80s, American society recovering from a turbulent '60s and '70s, and the Reagan era really kind of retrenched, found stability, crime goes down, and we have this this sort of clinging to um, what we have. And ultimately, what he's saying is the center really can't hold, right? We're sort of there's this tension building everywhere you look. Um, which is a certainly a dark outlook, but uh, what what do you think paul the The thing I thought was m- resonated with me the most you know more so than sort of the social but was the the uh, the political implications and the fact that you 've now got this entire political class that never seems to offer any new ideas and never seems to have any you know fresh perspective or solution and seems completely rutted and it's a thing that I think people are often frustrated about, and you hear people complaining about it, and you know it manifests itself only in say uh, it's the lesser of two evils is what I'm voting, or you know I'm going to vote third party if you're really bold, and then, and then everybody laughs at you like, hey, you're voting third party, that's a waste of time. Why are you wasting your vote? And you end up with this situation where people say, well, I don't like Hillary Clinton, I don't like Donald Trump, but I have to vote for somebody, uh, and I just think that to me that is kind of the most important dynamic right now is that. The, the trends he was talking about, this sort of complacency in, in, the US, in the American psyche is leading to this total stagnation politically. And that is a big collar on where this country can go, where it can grow. So I, I thought that was actually the most interesting kind of part of it and probably what I would want to talk to him about when we get him on. And, and I think one thing that's kind of compelling about this, this idea of complacency is it, it fits well with the theme of – um, income inequality and just that that the rich get richer the just that there's just mm-hmm. not, not that much uh, uh, upward mobility or not as much as there used to be and I, and I think that kind of helps explain sort of where we are today just that um, perhaps some of the complacency he's describing has helped sort of cement uh, these 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 social classes in a way uh, that 
again, perhaps the center can't hold, but but it sort of describes uh, where we're at now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when I think about his, not, this is a book that we well could have discussed here. We we didn't, but um, it's a book clubby type book. Is uh, anti fragile uh, if you read it? But I mean, basically, it's talking about things that are fragile and things that are anti fragile, right? And Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and you think of American society as not being very resilient, you know, because of you know it, it seems seems so, right? Because you have this apparent stability, but it. It's actually it contains the seeds of its instability, right? This polarization, this fact that we don't, you know, we kind of marry people who are like us and go to college with people like us. Live and, in cities increasingly next to people that are like us, right? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Well, one book I managed to squeeze in uh, in between book club books was uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is another popular book that's out now. Oh, and, yes, yeah. And, and I thought that was a particularly interesting book and kind of uh, meshes well with this because it sort of describes some of the, the pain of upward mobility that um, just that there's so much that goes along with, with trying to improve your lot in life that's that's really very painful and uh, can sort of create its own havoc. And it kind of, it kind of shows some of the... Um, the headwinds to it that perhaps uh, might explain some of 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 the, of the reason that people are kind of okay with some of the complacency that we see now. Right, and in that one, it's correct me if I'm wrong, but it's you know, a guy grows up in coal country, um, stuck in a family. It's really hard to to sort of improve his lot. Ultimately, joins the Marine Corps, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, that's that's I think a narrative, a personal narrative that kind of fits well into a lot of the themes that are discussed here. But and he and he really sort of bucked the trend. Uh, to be clear, that guy who makes it to Harvard Law or uh, Yale Law School, having grown up in sort of a working class family, and um, you know, it's just really hard to do that. A lot harder to do that now than uh, perhaps it would have been fifty, sixty, seventy years ago. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back on the other side of the break we will be speaking with the author himself Tyler Cowan the book is The Complacent Class The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream you are listening to the Money Beat Book Club podcast from the Wall Street Journal WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beats Book Club. And today we are talking about the book, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream by Tyler Cohen, who is George Mason University economics professor. And he writes the Marginal Revolution blog. And if you follow the world of finance at all, you certainly know his name. Professor Cohen, how are you? I'm fine here in Fairfax, Virginia. Oh, that's great. Uh, Pretty nice uh, weather we're having down there, huh? Perfect. Never been better. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in reading your book, in looking at it, it kind of strikes me that this is on a very, very large, you know, sort of very big picture idea. This is something that I think ever since the, the, the closing of the frontier, people have been talking about this sort of a changing of the American psyche, 
that it used to be that sort of westward ho, go west, young man, all that sort of idea of creating your own uh, your your own identity, your own reality, a new world, and all that stuff. And when the frontier closed, it was always about well, you know, that's going to change. We're not going to be that country anymore. And I don't know that it ever really happened. But it seems to be that what you're saying is that over the last 30, 40 some odd years, it is starting to happen. That's right. You could argue fighting the Cold War was, in a sense, the last frontier. And when that went away, we lost somewhat of a sense of purpose. We've innovated less rapidly. We move around the country much less. We protect our children much more. In general, we just take much less risk. You know, I I think the the question of innovation is an interesting one. I, I think... Uh, some of the the social uh, stasis that you talk about really resonated with me. But when I think about innovation, um, it sort of seems like we're innovating at a pretty rapid pace. Um, you know, we see sort of a lot of technological innovations taking place. Um, and, you know, how do you kind of square what sort of what you describe with some of what you see when you kind of, you know, when you look at the Facebooks and the Amazons and the Apples of the world? Well, I think there's one sector where we've done fantastic with innovation, and that's tech. But it's remarkable how many other sectors basically have measured zero productivity growth. And just simple questions like how quickly can I get around the country? How quickly can I drive to work? Uh, change in those regards, things are going backwards. Asala, the Asala train trip, New York to D.C., is no better than it used to be. Mm-hmm. My morning commute in some ways is worse. And when it comes to physical infrastructure, not information, uh, I don't think we're making a lot of progress. Uh, no, everyone here in New York City would agree with that, 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our yeah, commutes yeah. are terrible. Yes. <laughs> a lot of information technology, it's improved leisure a lot more than it's improved our productivity. Mm-hmm. So you can stay at home, watch Netflix, have Amazon send you you know, whatever you want, uh, but it hasn't made us that much better at making things, not yet at least. And you, you paint, a, um, this is Spencer Jacob, you paint a pretty bleak, picture of what this means for the future Um, because we're you know not only complacent but much less flexible much less able to deal with challenges that are bubbling under the surface Um, you know when you're not awfully specific in terms of what you see happening and when you see it happening but I mean what what do you see the next next 20 years looking like uh, you know based on this this framework Well, keep in mind, in the short run, complacency is often very pleasant. That's partly why we have so much of it. So in terms of tolerance and comfort and the quality of leisure, American life has never been better. That's great. But the problem does come when sooner or later you run out of money. Uh, You make more commitments than you can pay for. And we are not a high savings nation. We have a lot of explicit and implicit debt. And I think the crunch will come uh, when it gets too hard to pay the bills And we will have to cut back on a lot of commitments we've made. My guess, and I stress the word guess, is the first losers will be other countries that we have pledged to defend and not American citizens. And maybe you're starting to see a bit of that already with the Trump administration. Well, that's that's a good segue, Tyler. I mean, you were writing this book essentially as as the election was unfolding. Um, You know, talk about a little bit, I guess, about how you see the, the idea of complacency fitting into the to the, I guess, the election of President Trump and, and sort of what, what that means um, in terms of how we got here. Well, we had two of the oldest presidential candidates ever. We have Donald Trump saying, make America great again, looking back to the past. 
it's not the new frontier or the great society or morning in America, very forward-looking visions. It's backward-looking, wanting an America that in some ways is more like the Eisenhower era, lower immigration, fewer foreign alliances, more manufacturing jobs. Whenever Trump talked about infrastructure, you know, what he first says is fixing roads, tunnels, and bridges. Not a bad idea, but it's not actually very ambitious. So I view Trump as a candidate. He's all about talk for change. He doesn't really, per se, want that many policy changes. He wants to give people, like, the feeling of an older America again. And I think, in a way, he's actually an extreme version of complacency, cloaked in some other garb. Hmm. You, you know, one thing that you cite in the book is... Um this idea that protests and often violent protests, such as those that took place in the 60s and the 70s, were sort of a sign that, that, that society wasn't falling into complacency. And, you know, under the Trump administration, it seems like protesting has sort of had, had something of a resurgence, um, you know, looking at what happened in Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago, obviously. Yes. This is well after you wrote the book. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you, think, do you think the protesting we're seeing could be a sign that some of the complacency is starting to crumble around us? I think there's quite a good chance of that. One other thing that happens if you're too complacent is your governance starts becoming dysfunctional and people can't get good change accomplished through politics, so they look to other means. Now, some of these protests have been terrible. I don't at all mean to endorse the violence or even what a lot of these people believe, but I think it's nonetheless a sign that the country is in some ways waking up and saying, look, something is fundamentally wrong here and we may be about to go through a new period, you know, a bit like the 1960s, except this time with social media. I'm not you know, sure in, that will be an improvement, by the way. Right. It's interesting because I, I, I said in the first time, I thought the, 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 how this affected the politics, what you're talking about, how it affects politics, to me was what resonated the most because I think politics is, is obviously so important to what, we, what happens here in the country. You know, and, and the fact that you've, because of this trend that you're talking about in the book, you end up with this sort of very flat, uh, political class that really doesn't have any new ideas or anything to offer up and, and yes. doesn't know which way to take the, the country. Could you just kind of, uh, we've been dancing around that a little bit, but could you just kind of talk about how that happens and possibly what, you know, what we as citizens can do to, to change that? Well, if you think of the other presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, she was also pretty backward looking. Some of that was to the 90s. Uh, when she was in the White House. Some of that was to under Barack Obama. She basically said, well, things were good enough. I'm only going to change them a little. Let's have more of the same. Uh, that didn't actually go over that well in, in some ways. But she never felt like someone full of dynamic ideas with a vision of why she ought to be president. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of what people can do, I mean, there's the micro and the macro level. But at the macro level, this nation could be much more politically engaged. And I don't mean social media posts. I mean, at the very least, calling your representative on the phone. On the micro level, we can all take more chances and work harder to overcome our status quo biases. And you know, you're an economist, not a historian. But are, are there historical parallels that you would point to that, that show us how this could all play out? I mean, you know... Um, civilizations, empires, countries, periods of history where you've you've had this kind of high levels of, of comfort and then things have, have taken a sharp turn, you know, for similar reasons? Well, the most proximate period would be America in the 50s and throughout much of the early 60s. At the time, it was considered a fairly complacent era in some ways. It didn't stay complacent. 
it was a prelude to a very violent time, the mid-1960s through the 70s, with protests, an amazingly large number of bombings, riots, people killed, a uh, draft, of course, the Vietnam War. So there is, I think, a somewhat cyclical pattern to history where you have periods of calm, which then create some internal contradictions, and that gives rise later to some more violence and protest. It's not exactly pretty to live through. No. You know, just to skip back a little bit, I think, to, to the discussion that you have in the book about technology and, and innovation and how, you know, we think of it as being highly convenient to be able to meet your spouse on online. It's easy to go on Tinder and find a date these days. But um, there are these, the, the, the sort of flip side of that is it's, you're making the case that technology is sort of a vehicle that enables, you know, greater polarization, almost segregation. Um, you know, talk a little bit more about that because I think that resonated with me, but it's also, I think, not um, maybe not the first thing that folks uh, that comes to mind when, when people are sort of pulling out their cell phone on, on the subway. I mean, like, what are the what are the other implications, I guess, of the way that technology is unf- unfolding? Well, online dating and the internet they make it easier for very well educated or wealthy people to meet and marry. I mean, that's great for them. Uh, it does increase inequality in this country. I think the music market is a great example. Music has never been more accessible, and it's free or very cheap. You pay Spotify, you have everything. Uh, it's great for consumers, but I think it's actually harmed musical innovation in the present. Consumers spend so much more time or even money with the music of the past, and you see revenues for current musicians. They're not close to what they used to be. So again, it's the short-run, long-run trade-off, and the short-run we're all having fun listening to the Beatles on Spotify. Uh, in the long run, we're cutting into the seeds of our own future creativity. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of different areas in American life. Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, I, I think as someone who listens to music, I think there is a lot of good new music actually, but very little of it kind of can can branch out yeah, past right. a small core audience of, of fans to get that sort of mainstream uh, notice. It doesn't have social traction anymore. You know, think of music as often non-complacent. You dance to it. It gets you more excited. What's culturally central today is food, which you pair with wine. It may make you a little sleepy. Uh, If anything, you then want to not be so energetic. That's another reflection, I think, of our complacency, is trading in uh, cultural centrality of music for food. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and I just also to go go back to the the online dating. I thought that was an interesting example as well. I mean, it kind of plays into this idea that um, you know not only are all of these things sort of at our fingertips and easier to find, but that we find people and places that are more like us. That that in a way contributes to this to to the fact that we live in neighborhoods with more people that look that, that, with more people that look like us than we used to and. Um, that, that that sort of increases segregation. Maybe, maybe you could just talk a little bit about some of the trends that you discussed in the book um, in terms of how that's played out. Since the early 1990s, we're way, way more segregated by income. So hmm. wealthier people live together uh, and poorer people. Uh, we're more segregated by political views, Democrats and Republicans. It's why you get you know Trump winning the Electoral College and Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote by a fair amount. Uh, We're more segregated by education. Race is a trickier story, but at least in cities, we're much more segregated by race due to gentrification. 
So overall, those trends make many people more comfortable. That's a positive, but I'm not sure they're good for the nation or good for economic or social mobility. They're, again, a partial sign of stultification. And obviously, this isn't all caused just by online dating, but... Uh... No, I, I think mean, it is. It is all caused by <laughs> online dating. But yeah, so what are some of the, the drivers that have, that have led us here? Well, I think it's just easier to find out information about all kinds of things. You mentioned online dating, uh, but what neighborhood you want to live in, how good the schools are, what you think of a particular home, uh, where you want to you know, start your career as a dentist. So people, as you know, a big productivity gain from having more information, but it also locks people in. It gets them used to things not changing. It uh, gets them much more used to segregation. So I think all the information at our fingertips, it's been uh, had a lot of double-edged effects. You also talk a lot in the book about how much of this is unconscious, right? I mean, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, or in Austin, Texas, you're, it's going to be hard to find people who are um, well-educated people with good jobs who are, who are sort of consciously, you know, saying that they're contributing to segregation. I mean, to, like, and that's just it, I suppose, is the 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 structure just does this in a way that's almost unconscious and in ways that are hard for people to observe, I guess, if they're living it. That's right. And it's individually rational to want to live in a nice area. Who doesn't, correct? So you can afford right. a better place. You move up. You want a better school for your children. But at the collective level, again, something goes wrong where we end up limiting mobility. And mixed neighborhoods have a lot of virtues for encouraging upward mobility. We don't have as many of those anymore. To what extent, this is one, one thing that I, I don't think that you, you mentioned, but I, I'm thinking about it as um, sending my, my oldest off to college in a couple of days, is the, um, the very high cost of, of education, which is the sort of the entry point, um, especially if it's like a, a private, more prestigious place into uh, being upper middle class in this country or to continuing to be upper middle class. Um, how, how much does does that possibly play a role where, you know, you, you see these stats about if you're in the top X percent, you're how many, you know, multiples more likely to send a kid to uh, an elite university. Um, is that, is that playing a, a big role in this sort of uh, this polarization by, um, by ethnicity and income? Oh, that's a big factor. And one of my pet peeves is that so many of the top schools such as Harvard or Princeton, over decades, they've hardly increased the size of their entering class. Mm -hmm. And there are so, so, so many more qualified people, just not only within the U.S., but think China, India, the whole world. And since, you know, the mm -hmm. 1960s, Harvard has only doubled the size of the entering class. So you get these crazy scrambles where parents think at the level of kindergarten, is my kid going to the right kindergarten on the Upper West Side or whatever? And it's so wasteful and stressful. Uh, what we really need are top schools that are far more inclusive and give up some control and, say, increase their admissions by a factor of three, five, seven, whatever it takes. Wow. Spend some of that endowment money on professors? Uh, they could, but, you know, they could charge more and it would pay for itself. So they can do it. They just don't want to. And the fact that we all think this is acceptable, uh, I consider to be another sign of complacency. And I mean, of course, you're also a university professor. I'd be curious to hear sort of your own personal experience with how your classrooms changed or how you've seen the your own university sort of wrestle with these issues. Well, I teach at George Mason University in, in Virginia, and this is in large part a university of immigrants or children of immigrants. And I think of immigrants overall as our least complacent class. 
So I love teaching there. I think in some ways we cut against a lot of the trends I'm worried about. And that for me has been a very positive experience. And by the way, we've boosted enrollments by like a factor of 10, I think, since I started teaching here. And, and have you seen your classroom sort of become more concentrated with that group? Or, you know, how has that played out? Uh, it's become more diverse basically every year. I think it measures as being the second most diverse school in the whole country, one of the most diverse in the world. Quality has gone up. Uh, it's hard work to grow at that pace, but it can be done without lowering standards. There's just so much more talent out there, and we need to, to do a better job mobilizing it. But it's not really on people's radar screens as a major political or social issue. You know, before we wind this down, um, you mentioned one factor that that seems like compl- that has shaken up complacency this year certainly has been, you know, people getting out in, in the streets to to sort of protest the current political environment. What you know, what else are you optimistic about? I mean, like what over the past year are there other things that that you've you've sort of ta- see as a uh, bright signs for America's future? Well, I see many more dark signs than bright signs. Uh, But I would say this, the dysfunctionality that has set in in Washington, uh, I hope at least it will wake people up and that they realize we have not been on a course that was sustainable. And uh, the point we've come to in terms of dysfunctional policy, it's not some accident. It's actually the logical culmination of having a budget where more and more of it is pre-committed and everything is locked in and you can't address your problems. So I hope it's a wake-up call uh, but right now, again, I, I wouldn't describe myself as optimistic, maybe in the long run, but I think the bumpy path and the turmoil is right ahead of us. Wow. The book is The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. The author is Tyler Cowan. Tyler, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you all. And everyone, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. We will have another book club Pretty soon. We don't know exactly which one it's going to be yet, but uh, Ben is in charge of book clubs, so Ben's going to get right on that, right? Picking the next book. (laughs) Yeah, we still have to iron out what the next one is, but uh, we will let you know. We will let you know. Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.